Well, we're having a good time. We haven't even started yet. <laughs> Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As we go through First Kings, and God willing, as we go through Second Kings after this, we see two major types in the kings, unfortunately, very few good kings. And the kings, we cannot forget, are the anointed ones, or the messiahs. And so you have, well, and I should say too, Christ is the translation of Messiah. And so you have, you have two types. You have this, this positive type of Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and these negative types, or these anti-Christs, uh, anti-Messiahs. And so we want to, we want to read uh, the kings and the account of the kings in just this way where we're, we're seeing the deeper reality um, that these events are, you know, are speaking and foreshadowing and bringing to our minds. Now, in the, that larger kind of theological context of First Kings, we've we've seen, of course, good and bad, faithful and unfaithful, and now we are in the midst of a reign of an unfaithful king, very unfaithful king, Ahab, and of course his wife Jezebel. It is in that context, and really they probably wouldn't hold that prominent of a place in the narrative of First Kings, if not for Elijah and for God's purposes um, through Elijah, which happens under this reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah is such a prominent figure, of course, as a type of Christ on the one hand, as a type of John the Baptist more specifically, a kind of forerunner figure. Um, and as a type, ultimately, for all of the prophets, so that you have these, this kind of formulaic expression, the, the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets, and Elijah becomes representative of the prophets. So it's no mistake then when you have uh, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, for example. Um, so Elijah looms very large in the Old Testament narrative. We have been looking at him starting the last period, the last time we met. Um, we had seen Elijah, and we had seen what is uh, probably his best-known triumph. Of course, you have the business with the, uh, the drought, the widow of Zarephath, um, Elijah, uh, and the, the jar of oil, the container of flour that never runs dry, and all of this in the midst of the drought um, that Elijah brought on. And then you have, of course, uh, Elijah raising the widow's son. I mean, none of these are things to sniff at, but they're, they're major things, and they're foreshadowings of what Christ himself does. But the climax, at least in terms of how we think of Elijah, comes with uh, what happens on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal defeated. That's chapter 18, and that's what we just dis, um, covered. So we saw Elijah... And maybe surprising to our New, our New Testament sensitivities, uh, but no sooner than, than Elijah wins against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and the people see this, 
the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. So that's where we left off with the seizing of the prophets of Baal, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And then that is where we, uh, where we pick up with the new material today, chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. This, of course, is bringing an end to the drought, the famine. So Ahab went to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. Isn't this great? You have the seven. Okay, so, so we've got all this typological ingredients here that we could, we could make into a fantastic reflection and homily. Um, but you've got, you've got this element of the seven times. Um, we saw that with Naaman washing himself seven times. We see the location of, I mean, rain could come from anywhere, but the, but the rain is connected, this cloud is connected to the sea. So water, water is the place of deliverance. And you have this imagery of the water and the cloud that is very, very easily assimilated into the water and the spirit, typologically. And this is going to be uh, water from the sea and the cloud that gives life. And so it's going to be an analogy of, of baptism, that washing of water that gives life. Okay, so... Um, there's this, there's this little cloud that's the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel takes the news real well that all her prophets <laughs> have been slain. <laughs> she calls upon the gods. Which one? All of them. Whatever. Just whoever's up there. Whatever. Uh, but she swears this oath that Elijah is going to die. I think you can glimpse there who's kind of wearing the pants. Ahab's supposed to be the king. Jezebel doesn't say, honey, what do you think about this? <laughs> what should we do? <laughs> so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. 
And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. You know, this is very interesting. It's an interesting character study in Elijah. Elijah is a complicated character, isn't he? He just saw God do this miracle on Mount Carmel. He just slew, I forget how many hundreds of priests of Baal. Now, now the queen announcing this, I don't mean to underplay the, the danger here. She can say whatever she wants to say, and it's going to be carried out and followed, and now he's literally safe nowhere, so I get this. But he just saw the hand of God, too, so there's that other side. <laughs> so should he be afraid or not? Um, Elijah's depicted just so very realistically here, um, as he was and as we all are, um, both faithful and fearful at the same time. But it must have been in excellent shape if he can run ahead. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's racing the chariot there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not talking an old, gray-haired... Well, who knows? What's wrong with old and gray hair? You might still be fat. No. <laughs> do, I, do I sound a little defensive? <laughs> uh, you might still be fast. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's a, vigor- he's a vigorous and lively guy. We know that because he, uh, he was slaughtering all the prophets, to, or all the false prophets down by the... I imagine your arm might get tired after a few. Yeah, so, so Elijah's got a good deal of strength here. You know, he, he's... Um, well, he's got reason to be afraid, and he is afraid. If, if you look at things from like a worldly standpoint... Um, you know God's there, but you don't know necessarily that he's going to spare you. Verse 3, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. Yeah, this is the famous under the broom tree episode. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You know, what does he mean there? No better than my father's. What do you think? I don't know. Because he's afraid of his life, and now he wants somebody to take it. I think in one sense, and, and maybe this would be the most general and generic sense, maybe not even the specific sense that he had in mind, but in one sense I'm no better than my father's. That is, I'm a sinner and they're sinners. Yeah. yeah. Um, or is he also contemplating what I've, I've never have accomplished anything. I mean, he did this thing with the thing, but he's looking at it like, well, it didn't make a difference. Yeah. I suspect that's more acutely what he's thinking about. Is he's thinking more about his his role as a prophet, and he's thinking about um, his the patriarchs and their role, and how the wicked, perverse generations always seem to win, and he seemed to be very ineffective. I um. I think that that probably is the most accurate sentiment in this context. And it's certainly one I think we've all resonated with from time to time. And, and most Christians have. You know, even, even when Christianity has been at its, at its height, 
I'm not sure that this feeling is entirely gone because you feel as though the world and, and the false Christians around um, always predominate and um, very often have temporal victories or temporal control. Well, maybe that's a sufficient uh, consideration of what, might, what he might be feeling. He nonetheless asked God that he might die. And his rationale is, it is enough now, Lord, take my life away for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, which is so great. Because sleep is one of these, sleep's one of these profoundly interesting concepts in scripture. Um, and there's a certain depth to it that we don't give credit. Here, here this kind of sleep is what? Um, almost, a kind of, almost a kind of like suicidal sleep. Right? It's, it's like, I would rather, if I can't die, <laughs> which I can't, I'd rather be asleep. You know, which is, which is kind of the next thing. And, and this is a very common way we feel when we get uh, depressed or exhausted by life or demoralized or despaired. Yeah, you just sleep. You just say, I just want to go to bed. Sometimes the happiest and most exuberant moment, like the time you get the most euphoria, is when you go, bedtime. <laughs> time to check out. Yeah, yeah. So we, I, to one degree or another, I think we all have experienced this this kind of uh, sleep that he goes into. Um, you know, interestingly, and I won't spend a lot of time building a case here, but there's this kind of spiritual component to sleep, into wanting to go to sleep, and um, you can see a tangential, albeit different, example of this. When the disciples go with Jesus on the night when he's betrayed into the garden and they all sleep. Remember how they can't stay awake? Really, really interesting to reflect on. I don't know how, I don't know how much it is they can't stay awake versus they don't want to stay awake and thus they can't stay awake. There's this kind of sleep as death there. We don't want... Hmm. I'd have to think about that. I'd have to think about that. Yes, sir. Um, I've heard that Luther said that when we go to sleep, we practice our death, and when we awake, we practice our resurrection. Yeah, uh, right. I've come to that along those lines, you yeah. know, in, in saying that prayer, the evening prayer and the morning prayer. So, uh, so yeah, it's. Uh, I guess it's a solitude that, sleep offers, yet it's something which you know, we have to look forward to. Um, I, I work with a lot of people in the retirement homes, and I hear them just like Elijah here saying, I, I want to go, I, wanna, I want the Lord to take me, take me. So it's very similar, their prayer. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's true. And I think, I think to draw an analogy there to what you were saying, he sees, you know, he's got the try, like, what is going to convert Israel, if not what just occurred? So, you know, that's kind of where he's like, that's it. That's it. If, if that didn't do it, nothing's going to do it. Um, and so he comes, to, he comes to a conclusion that the usefulness of his ministry is over, and he may as well just cash in his chips. And I think that that's kind of analogous to how, how um, we all get as life goes on and you, you have to fight that at the end of life where you kind of feel like, well, that was it. 
it was spent and now it's worthless. I, I, actually think that, I actually think that that's a feeling and a thought that we ought to resist. We ought to say, no, God has me here. I still have vocation, I still have calling, I still have purpose. And then to try to seek and find that, it may not be at all what, you, what we think it is. And I, sometimes um, that purpose is, uh, even when we're quite isolated, that purpose that God has for us is cruciform. He is conforming us into the image of his son. He is allowing us to suffer and to experience that suffering and to know that suffering and be intimate with it um, and yet keep faith in the face of that suffering. And that is a, that is a, a kind of vocational identity. I, well, I'm probably going to preach on this this week, so I don't want to give you all my good stuff. But nobody, the, the best vocations, maybe even, maybe even the closest we come to a true definition of vocation, because it's kind of squirrely to define, is you definitely don't really um, choose it. There may be an element in which you make decisions about it in regard to it, but, I mean, think of this even in marriage. We talked about this in the earlier class. If you haven't been given the supernatural gift of celibacy, you, you don't really have a choice. You're, you're going to be married, okay? Um, so so all, the, all vocations are kind of, and if you're married, you know, again, it, if you're not going to be sinful about it, you're going, you know, unless, unless, of course, God has laid this other vocation and cross upon you and, and there's barrenness in the marriage, you're going to have children. And so these things are kind of, you know, and then I miss even just kind of start from the existential source. You didn't choose to be born. You know, you're born as a, so there's this, there's this element of it being laid upon us. And, um, and that, that is true not only from the very beginning of our life where life is laid upon us. We don't have a choice. We're brought into it. But really all the way through life, we may be able to choose, hey, it's this flavor of spouse or that, but you're not choosing the fact of whether or not you're going to have a spouse. And um, it, you know, it may be this job or that, but you're not choosing the fact that you're going to have a job. It may be this relationship or that, but you're still going to have those relationships with your children. And that goes all the way on. Um, it may not be, uh, it may not, I mean, nobody chooses, nobody says, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to have cancer, or I'd like to have uh, extremely painful arthritis, or I would like to, you know, ex experience loss of sight. Um, you know, no, nobody says these things. They're laid upon us. And that goes all the way, really, from uh, conception to grave. And I think it's a key thing for us to perceive our lives in, in those terms perceive God laying them upon us, and if nothing else, perceive them as, as cruciform in the way that, that Christ suffers all of these things laid upon him passively, and yet cries out, my God, my God. It cries out in faith, um, even with complaint, why have you forsaken me? But nonetheless, in faith. And so to endure, endure these crosses, and keep faith is in and of itself extremely valuable, exceedingly valuable. It's a liturgy of praise. It's, lit it's a liturgy that you are performing by simply keeping faith actively in the midst of the passive sufferings. So that, that gives meaning and shape, no matter, even if you're sitting in a nursing home, even if you're, even if you're a paraplegic, whatever, and you can't, you can't actually like do anything. You're just sitting there. Um, so it's very important for us to think about this. And uh, I suppose if we're going to take the line, and it's fine to take this line, 
of uh, Elijah having a kind of faithless moment here, a moment of la- lacking perspective, that's, that's fine. Um, we, could counsel and we could counsel Elijah along those lines and say, God hasn't, God hasn't called you, Elijah, to successfully convert all of Israel. God has called you to be faithful. You've been faithful. You know, take heart, take comfort in, in that. And, um, and that's how we console ourselves, too. I'm not trying to put ourselves on a pedestal above the prophet here by any means. But that's how we console one another. And that's how we think. And we want to think about our lives in those terms so that we don't lose heart. And we don't lose hope. And we don't fall into... Um, Despair. It's what the catechism calls falling into despair. Is when you go, well, my life is spent. It's meaningless. It's purposeless. Yes, in the back. Oh, what, one second. We can get you a, um, a microphone. Um, everything that's happened in my life, I, if I regress you know, emotionally and go, that happened because of this and that mm-hmm. happened... And I never could have planned all the things that go into a decision or like a circumstance. Yeah. But is that, and it's happened so many times, I can't, you know, I know. And, and I believe in vocation. I believe no matter what you're doing, there's a vocation to it. Mm-hmm. But is that just for the believer or does God put that on everyone? Yeah, because I, I know it's true of us. Yeah, I think it's, I think to some extent he does, he does lead everyone. I mean... That's, that's one of the things that I've come to conclude that God allows the world to be the way it is because it's part of how he's resi- redesigned it post-fall post in order to draw us to himself. And I think, I don't know for a fact, but I suspect that God will be able to say to every single human soul, this was, this was me destroying your idol. This was me calling you. This was, you know, and you knew it. You knew it, right, as we were going along. You knew it and I knew it. And you, you turned away from me umpteen, you know, times. And you know that and I know that. Um, so I do, think that, I do think that God's hand is active through creation in the lives of all people. And he's using, he's using the fall. He's using our conscience. He's using our natural knowledge of him. He's using our natural knowledge of him through creation, calling each and every man to himself and through the experiences of life calling them. Um, yeah, so in short, I think it's for everyone. I think, I think we as Christians are hugely advantaged because if we understand the cross as example, um, and I don't mean the cross as example as a means or way by which we are justified before God or something, but I mean the cross is the shape of our life and existence. It's, it's the source and center of all meaning. And if we can perceive our lives in the light of the cross and the shape of the cross and the things that are happening to us in light of the, the cross, we can understand we can understand much more richly and profoundly the two facets, the God-to-man and the man-to-God components of that. Like, in other words, what God is doing to us in and through our suffering, glorifying us, conforming us into the image of his Son, blessing us, so that the very things we think are curses are probably point in fact God's means of profound blessing. But then the flip side from man to God, that this is our offering, this is our liturgy, this is our worship, Keeping and retaining faith while enduring all these things. That's why endurance, that word enduring, is such a, 
such an underemphasized word, even though it's all over the it's all over the New Testament. We look at it as enduring is the bare minimum. Just endure. <laughs> you know, if you can't do anything else, just endure. If you can't have a good attitude about it at baseline, just endure. Just hang in there. Just sit there and take it. But that's not the biblical calling of endurance. It's almost the opposite. It's keep the faith. Keep your eyes on God while suffering all these things. And address him and cry out to him and call out to him by way of the Psalms. Um, but don't forsake him. Don't apostatize. It's a very active thing, this endurance. It's clinging to God and his promises over and against our experiences. That is, that is a liturgy and an act of worship. It's turning one's life into a hymn of praise, to borrow from the, the hymn this past Sunday. Um, and that's, that's our calling. Yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question there, but yeah. So it's really, we can take heart that uh, since Elijah loses his way here, um, we, are, we are going, we can almost be certain that we're going to lose our way from time to time, and we're going to fall into despair as Elijah here falls into despair. And we're going to see how the Lord treats him when he falls into despair, and then extrapolate from that how the Lord treats us when we fall into despair. All right, so I'm going to hide under a broom tree. If I ever get a man cave, maybe that's what I'll name it. <laughs> the broom tree. <laughs> Rody's broom tree, yeah. yeah. Sometimes that's my office. If you find me sleeping under my desk, that's what I'm doing. I've given up. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, it's enough now, Lord. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. <laughs> yeah, this is beautiful. I, th I think it's beautiful. It's so, because God is, God is compassionate. God is compassionate. God doesn't call down from heaven and say, Oh, you have little faith. What did I just do? You know, centering his thunderbolts. What did I just do on Carmel? Look at you. What's wrong with you? You're scared of a woman. You know. If you want to die, why did you run away from Jezebel? <laughs> uh, so so God's, very, God's very merciful and sends an angel, which I think there's something to be gained there too, that when, when we sometimes require comfort, uh, God, God doesn't come so much directly um, as he sends an angel. And sometimes that angel has you know, hands and feet and a human face. Yeah, we've all been there. We've all been there. And, and what profound encouragement to be angels, quote-unquote, to one another and to be those uh, ministers caring for one another. Um, what else does he do? He doesn't, now no, there's nothing wrong with this, okay, but just work with me on my contrast here. He, the angel doesn't come and say, here's a devotion for you. The angel doesn't come and say, here, let me fix this for you. Um, the angel comes and gives him food and drink. Which is just also such a beautiful testament to the fact that we are earthly creatures and in need of creature comforts and sometimes just meal for strength and uh, food and just this very material thing has so much meaning, has so much meaning. So there's great beauty here, and like you know, you, you may not be able to fix your friend's problem, you may not be able to cure their despair, but you can you can bring them a, something to eat or a little pick me up and let that 
let that have its way. It is enough. So there's, there's this beautiful thing here. Now, um, we also can't forget, and I've already kind of alluded to this, to contrast this with Jesus in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, because there, you know, Elijah here is having to drink this, this cup um, of, of great challenge and great despair, and of course, where he's failing, our Lord's going to succeed. Um, but just as Elijah, as he goes through this period of great tentatio, that's the um, the Latin for temptation and uh, temptation to apostatize, to fall into unbelief. Um, our Lord was going through tentatio to the extreme in the garden. And parallel, that just as God sent an angel to minister to Elijah, God sends angels to minister to Jesus. And we can... Um, we can see that at, at various points in Jesus' own life and ministry, the angels come and minister to him. Um, I know that they come after his temptation, too. So, uh, his, um, in the wilderness. So, um, yeah, the role of angels ministering to us. Beautiful, beautiful thing. All right. So he has food, and then he lays down. He lays down again. Doesn't. He doesn't say, okay, all better. He lays down again. Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said... Um, now, this is interesting because here we have the angel of the Lord. Pre previously, we just had an angel. Here's the angel of the Lord, which would be Jesus. And so that colors it in, in an even different color, that this is the Lord Jesus coming and showing him compassion and mercy. As our Lord Jesus often shows us such great compassion and mercy small things and physical things and and it's not and because it's physical i think sometimes we're so gnostic as americans we discount it you know that god would work through physical things so that we should be embarrassed if we take great comfort and even spiritual well-being in small little physical things you know sometimes it's just a phone call or a letter or some little tiny trinket or something right we think to ourselves well that's not very spiritual well who's to say that that's not very spiritual to take comfort in something physical and material. Here the Lord Jesus comforts, uh, comforts him with a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. You often wonder what kind of cake. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Probably not fruit cake. <laughs> What's that? Raisins and dates, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. What's, what's interesting here, too, I mean, I don't know. I, I have a tendency to, my imagination has a tendency to go too far sometimes, but um, why does he put this detail? And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. You almost get the picture that, like, well, yeah, I was thinking along the lines of that the angel, who we come to know as the angel of the Lord, like, might have cooked it right there for him. You know, it's not necessarily that he just sort of like rang the doorbell on the broom tree and delivered it, you know, ready to go. But, but he, might have, he might have actually been there cooking it. That's the mention of the hot stones preparing it and then giving it to him. Oh, yes. Well, certainly. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. This arise and eat theme has its tangents too. 
Remember when um, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law? She arises and serves them food. It's a little different. Remember when Jesus raises the little girl? He says, then give her something to eat. This rising and eating theme is really interesting. And um, of course, typologically, if you think of baptism as rising, being that spiritual resurrection, and then eating at the Lord's Supper, rise and eat. There's that parallel too. So there's lots to ponder in this text, lots to think about. I mean, it's a beautiful text in its own right, even if you don't do the typology. It's just gorgeous and, and comforting. Uh, you see the tender compassion of God um, when we fall into despair, when someone so great as Elijah falls into despair. Okay, verse 8, he arose, ate, and drank, and went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, to the Mount of God. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's got, it's got analogy to Jesus and um, his, his fasting in the wilderness. Um, you wonder what kind of cake it was for 40 days and 40 nights? Or yeah, it was like, what's that they, in the Lord of the Rings, lembus bread <laughs> that the elves give them, and you eat a bite of lembus bread and you last for a long time. Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously, obviously there's something supernatural going on here because you're not going to last 40 days without without food, even if you ate all the cake you could eat, um, you're not going to last that. So it's supernatural, but yeah, on the, on the strength of that food. So, I mean, here we could, here we could glean much from the Lord's Supper. It's, it's true bread, and yet it has miraculous effect. It yeah, sustains. Mm -hmm, through the 40 days of, of this journey of this life until we come to the Mount of God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Did I skip that? Where, what, where is that? Where, where are you reading from? What verse? Um, verse seven. 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 I just, I just, yeah, yeah. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that comforting? I just, I just went over it too fast. Mm, mm. What a great analogy to the Lord's Supper. Yeah, what a great analogy. This is beyond your strength. You're not, you're not going to make it. You're not going to keep faith. You're going to spiritually die unless you have this meal. Yeah, yeah, great point. Yeah, so he arose, ate, and drank, went in the strength of that food. Isn't that just a lovely expression? It's like, that's precisely how we'd summarize when we finally arrive at heaven. I got here by the strength of that food. <laughs> <laughs> by the Lord's Supper. That's how I arrived here. Not by my own strength. By the strength of that food. Forty days, forty nights to Horeb, which of course is the Mount of the Covenant. The parallel for us would be the Mount of the New Covenant, which is the, the cross of Jesus, the cup of Jesus, Calvary. So he goes to Horeb, the Mount of God. We go to Calvary, the Mount of God. And of course, as we're going to see then, this is, uh, this is where Moses was. So here we're going to see the really close connections, and this is um, probably as much as anything, why you, ha you have to remember, I, I mean, you really, there really is no figure, I mean, maybe, maybe Abraham, but Moses is... Uh, the predominant figure of the Old Testament in so many ways. And so the fact that Elijah here is going to be so closely associated with Moses 
really puts Moses and Elijah on that pedestal so that it is not any surprise when you see them at the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. He's going to the same place where Moses went, Horeb. Um, you remember the burning bush is Horeb, too. And then the, where the, the Ten Commandments and the covenants given, that's Horeb. Now Elijah's at Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. What are, I think the study note should point this out. Does it not? Hmm. Hmm. I should have looked into this. I was thinking the study note would have it for sure. Well, if you look at the study note on 19, 8 through 14, Elijah had experiences similar to those of Moses. One on Horeb, both men went without food for the same length of time. Two, Elijah stood at the entrance of the cave. Yeah, this is what I was looking for. Moses was in the cleft of the rock when the Lord's glory passed by. In other words, this is probably the same cave. That really, uh, believing that this is the same cave, the cleft of the rock where, remember, God passes and, and Moses only sees the back side of him. Um, that's, uh, keep that in your mind for what happens with Elijah. And if you read those two data sets together, it's just absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, we'll see that in a minute. So, okay, so they both... Went without food for the same time. They're both on the same mountain. They're both likely in the same cave, the entrance of the cave and the cleft of the rock. And then three, Elijah wrapped his face in his cloak and Moses hid his face at the burning bush. So we're to see these two episodes is very, very similar. Now, this is really fascinating in terms of the transfiguration because what Moses gets is, is a, uh, a theophany that's not a full revelation, right? He just gets to see the backside of God. What does that mean? Well, God, but not God, not the face of God. And then what we're going to see with Elijah, I don't want to spill all the beans, of course, but you probably already know, and you get this revelation of God, but it's unusual. It's unusual revelation of God. So anyway, both men get a revelation of God on the mountain. At the Mount of Transfiguration where they appear, then they see the revelation of God. They see the face of God. They see the full revelation of God in Christ Jesus. They see the still small voice, as it were, the word made flesh. And uh, not the backside of God any longer, but the front side of God, the very face of God in Christ Jesus. So you've got, you've got these major, major biblical themes going on where they get these kind of partial, satisfying but unsatisfying visions and then um, that comes to its fullness in the transfiguration. And the transfiguration itself is a type of the beatific vision. So all of this culminates in crescendos when we all see God face to face, the, the essence of heaven itself. And also Moses got to be in a promised land. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so let's go on then and see the, the similarities here. Sorry, I was just starting to think of other parallels too. There's more parallels here than I imagined. Moses is kind of in exile from from uh, Egypt. Remember when he comes into this when he comes into this cave and sees the burning bush and all of this. And I mean, there's there's more depth to it than that. I'm oversimplifying. I'm making it seem more one-dimensional than it is. But Elijah's in 
in this same kind of flight and exile. Okay, so um, he came to the cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, again, just look at the language there. It's much easier to understand the word of the Lord as Christ than as like some sort of audible word coming down from heaven. Because, because again, look at, the, look at the pronoun. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him. I mean, why wouldn't it just be the word of the Lord came to him? What are you doing here, Elijah? But there's this, uh, there's this additional clause. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very uh, jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I love this question. What are you doing here? It's great. <laughs> it's just so great. It's just so the Lord. Here we see a positive use of the word jealous. So in Exodus, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God loves jealously. That is, that is possessively and exclusively. This is something that's definitely being threatened in our culture today where love is just this emotion and this um, equal, like, like love is love. Isn't that the phrase? And, and you know, so whatever I, def- whatever I want love to be is love, but then love is love, and so I can love anything and anyone the same way if I want, and that kind of thing. Um, but biblical love has these contours and has this jealous element to it, and true love has this jealous element to it. Um, God is a jealous God. He desires our love to be exclusive to him, not to be shared with other gods. The love of a husband for a wife and a wife for a husband is a jealous love. It's a love that says, you are mine and I am yours, and any other intrusion into this would be a breach of that trust and that union. And here then we see the jealousy of, uh, of Elijah for God. I love you and love you exclusively and want your name to be honored exclusively and and all of Israel is falling away from you. So I just simply point that out because um, jealous love is good love. If you just said that, if you just like, I don't know, tweeted that or put that on Facebook, jealous love is good love, your your comment section would probably (laughs) fill up with people disagreeing with you, you know. Uh, Jealousy, jealousy has no part in love. That sounds possessive and, and on and on. But it just goes to show how different the Bible conceives of love than fallen man. In fact, I won't launch off on that. I will just mention that I, I have come to conclude that we know absolutely zero about love, and we have to entirely relearn it from God's Word, um, as if we knew nothing. But I, the same is true with good, I think, by and large. We have a very sh- shallow, superficial, and only partly correct understanding of what is good. We have to have that radically redefined by God as well. Okay, so what does he say? Is, it tr- is his complaint true? No, not, not by and large. Um, it is true that he's been very jealous for the Lord, yeah. the God of hosts. There is a little bit of an indictment here of God, and, and that's fine. I, I mean, this is, this is an acceptable thing. The, the Psalms are filled with these kind of indictments of the Lord. Um, 
We ought not shy away from that. Where, where's the indictment? I think, I think in this sense, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. This is like, this is the God of power, the God of armies, the God of, you know. So it's kind of like, hey, I've been out here fighting for you, and I know you have the power to fight with me and to defeat your enemies, and you're not. So it's kind of like we're all on the battle line, and you yell charge, and I'm the only one that ran. <laughs> uh, I may be, I may be uh, you know, exaggerating this a little, but, but there, is a, there is at least a tinge of indictment here. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And there's this sense of like, why haven't you fought with me? So the Lord responds, or the word of the Lord responds. Again, it's he, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. Now that's language reminiscent of Moses when he was in the cleft of the rock looking out. The Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. So there's, there's this sense in which the Lord is passing by. I mean, it says very clearly that the Lord passed by. And then this wind is before him, but he's not in the wind. Now, we'll, we'll tie this together, but I just want you to kind of have the puzzle pieces as we go. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Well, what's going on here is really rather complex, I think. Um, I think that there's, there's at least two different layers to it. What do you make of this powerful wind? I mean, it's almost like a gale force wind or something or a tornado or something because it tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So you've got this very powerful wind, very powerful earthquake, very powerful fire. We're told the Lord is not in these things. There's even this sense in which... um, you know, he's standing before the mount of the Lord, and at some point in time, it, it almost seems like he retreats into the cave or retreats back into the, this cleft. Because in verse 13, you know, in verse, uh, in verse 11, it's go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And then in verse 13, it's he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. You see, there seems to be some kind of physical movement there. So what do you make of that? What do you make of that? I can think of at least two very general, broad takeaways from that. Um, And there really is no right or wrong answer in in terms of, well, maybe there is a wrong answer. But um, but what do you you think? What do you think is going on there? Yeah. God comes in ways you don't expect. There you go. I think that's the the predominant thing, is that God God comes in ways you don't expect. What is... is, um, 
What does Elijah really want? He wants God to come in wind or earthquake or fire. He wants action. He wants it done. And God is saying, no, my way is in this, uh, this still small voice, or, or how did we just read it, this, uh, this quiet, um, yeah, this whisper. Yeah, the sound of a low whisper. But isn't this like the Pharisees and Sadducees? That, that's what all they want. The whirlwind, fire, earthquake, that would, they kept asking Jesus, perform this thing. That's what I want too. Yeah, I know. I think I think we all want we all want God to act more decisively, more definitively, more obviously. And that's our, that's our frustration. Um, that's often why we cry out with the psalmist in lament and indictment and hey God, I thought this is, you know, or why was I mean, look at look at Elijah like look, I was faithful to you and now I'm fleeing for my life, you know. Doesn't exactly doesn't exactly pay here. Um, so yeah, the, the, Lord is, the Lord is definitively saying, um, you, Elijah, and maybe everyone else, want me to work in these plainly manifest kinds of ways. Most often I don't. Now, does God, in fact, act in those ways from time to time? Well, sure. Sure. He flooded the world. He acted very decisively against Egypt. The time comes where his patience is at an end for the nations and they get struck down in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, God does act and act definitively. And, and then frequently when he does, we don't want him to anymore. Um, you know, I don't know, when he might like strike the world with a pandemic or something. No sooner than he does, we say, hey, uh, could you please stop? <laughs> so do you want him to act or not? You know, it's Mm. You're seeing his attributes, and now you're acting like you're not yeah, seeing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, it's right. It's right. I mean, it's, and that's part of human rebellion and human nature. Is we always want God to be doing something other than He's doing, because um, we want to be God ultimately. But okay, so yeah, there's the there's the theophany aspect. I think that that's the main. I think, I think the only other reflection you might have on this is sort of, um, again, if you view him as coming outside and you see this, and you see what's passing by is um, this great destructive wind, earthquake, fire, and at some point in time he's retreating back into the cleft. That can also, while I think theophany is primary, I think it can also function in the sense of like, um, I mean, what is, what is he experiencing but Jezebel and all her forces coming against him, and he can be safe in the cleft of the rock and know that the still small voice of God will come. He will be kept safe from these things, and that voice will come, and, um, and, and right will come. You know, God's, God's will will be manifest. So I think that that's a kind of a distant secondary reflection. Obviously, theophany is primarily in view, but we can take that, that away from it too. Like, and it's kind of where the psalmist, I think, get this idea of, you know, hide me in the, in the cleft of the rock and this kind of thing, that the rock protects you from wind, the rock can protect you from earthquakes if you're in a cave, you know, in a fire, that kind of thing. Okay, 
Let's, uh, let's move just a little further with what time we have. So, after the fire, this, the end of verse 12, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. We saw the parallel with Moses and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is why I say this is just, isn't this so godlike? Asking questions. In the Garden of Eden, that's all he does is ask questions until. And then, so here for the second time, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I even, I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he repeats, he repeats his, um, his complaint. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, so the Lord gives the still small voice and that revelation, that theophany, and then he does go on to give a kind of temporal, temporal um, answer to Elijah's prayers. If you look at, um, yeah, which. Yeah, so if you look at the study note in chapter 19, verses 15 through 17, um, just a little ways, a little ways along. Um, in a renewed battle against idolatry, Elijah was to anoint these men. Elijah personally recruited Elisha, um, we'll see that coming up, who in turn carried out the commands concerning Hazael and Jehu, and references there to 2 Kings. And then just dropping down to the next study note, Jehu called the son of Omri on an Assyrian black obelisk that lists his tribute paid to Assyria because Israel was known as the land of Omri. The low relief carving shows Jehu bowed on his knees before Shalmaneser III. Yeah, so um, as you look at this, there's like, It's kind of a complex thing to take away what the Lord's doing here. He gives, he gives some temporal structure and some temporal answer. Like that's this business about escaping from one sword to fall by another and escaping from that sword to fall by another. Like, there's, like the Lord promises Elijah some temporal help here and a kind of, a kind of mechanism by which um, 
He will fight against the idolatry. But ultimately, I think the comfort is to be taken in the low whisper and the counterintuitive ways in which God reveals himself and works, working through his, through his word. And here is that word and promise in verse 18, you know, very famously, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there is a remnant. And, um, I mean, I don't, I don't really have a, a dog in the show in terms of whether you look at this like super literally, there were precisely 7,000, not one more, not one less, or whether you see this as kind of a symbolic number of a remnant. You know, seven is God's number times a thousand, the fullness. It, that may be, in fact, what it means, kind of a general, general promise of a remnant to be um, sustained in the midst of Israel. It's not many, by the way. It's not many. I don't. I'd, I'd kind of hesitate to hazard a guess at the total population, but at, ver- at minimum, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, um, probably more likely over a million, um, maybe even several million in terms of that entire geographical area. So 7,000 is a profoundly small percentage, really no matter how you cut it. No matter how you cut it. Okay. It is a, it is a str- well, I guess we're out of time, but I'll just summarize by saying, that's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of a strange thing. It in, and those strange things in the Bible, I think, are, are there because they, reflect, they, they invite reflection. They invite us to go and stop and take a look and ponder the strangeness and the mystery. Um, and then eventually the narrative moves on, and it moves on. Um, but, it, but it is strange, and it's strange because you don't get like, you don't get Elijah saying, oh, okay, that makes everything better. Thanks, Lord. And, you know, you just, you don't get any answer. There's, there's really this, I, it's this kind of biblical call to meditate upon this text. And then the narrative just simply moves on as if, like, the, there isn't quite the resolution you'd want there to be. And if you were framing a narrative that wasn't the word of God, you might write that narrative more smoothly and more as a cohesive, coherent story. But that's not the Holy Spirit's purpose. That's not the author's purpose. The author's purpose is to invite reflection, to call you through the mystery and kind of the disjunct into, uh, into pondering this more deeply. Because the next thing we're told is that um, Elijah just simply departs. We don't even really get his response. He just departs and goes about this next business of calling Elisha. And then we move into that, that next section of this text. So that's what we'll look at next week. The Lord be with you.